Please turn in your Bibles to the prophet Habakkuk. That's how I'm going to go with the pronunciation. I've, some say tomato, some say tomato, as you probably know. Habakkuk is the way I've heard it the most. We don't know exactly how to pronounce it, so uh, that will be the way uh, we go, f- uh, go forward here together. This is a prophecy that is in the Old Testament, page 785 of your Pew Bible. I do need you to have your Bibles open to this, either your Pew Bible or your personal Bible, your electronic version, whatever it is, uh, because I won't read all of the verses to start, but we'll cover all the verses of chapter one and then two, really four verses in chapter two. Then we'll pick up there again, Lord willing, next week, four sermons to go through these three chapters of Habakkuk. Now, there's not a real spiritual science behind how books get picked to go through expositions concerning. Um, sometimes the elders will, will talk through two or three different books and kind of give feedback and we'll pick one that way. Um, other times, I need four weeks before I start a new series and had to find a book I can do in four weeks. So that's the science behind Habakkuk. Now the beauty of this is that it's God's Word, so it's inspired and it's inerrant. It's profitable for our, our teaching, for reproof, for correction, for our training in righteousness. So you could pick any of the books, and we're going to walk through it together. That's our goal as a church, is to get through all the books of the Bible uh, before we rest. And so Habakkuk is one we have not yet covered, at least in my brief 24 years here. So we're going to open up Habakkuk together. Now here's the thing. Habakkuk's a tough book. It's, a, it's tough interpretively, and it's tough content-wise. So I'm going to ask you, brothers and sisters, to bear down with me. We don't want a superficial flyover of this book. Too much depth here to do that. But I'm going to need you to bear down with me and get ready with your Bibles in hand so we can look at these verses, asking God to help us understand what is true, and then also, as a result of the timeless truth that's taught, what to do. Now, the first order of business is to know the background of Habakkuk. What time frame is he writing in? What's going on around him? That will help us gather what the meaning of the passage is, the meaning of the book is. You may remember from your uh, Bible history that Israel was one nation under David. Really, it reached its spiritual high point, you might say, under David. And then under Solomon, his son, it even rose to higher levels internationally, the temple being built under Solomon's watch. Around 900 BC, 900 years before Jesus, you see Israel probably at its peak worldwide as far as how nations looked at the nation. But it wasn't long after Solomon's death that, for various reasons, uh, the nation split into two. The north called Israel, ten tribes to the north, and to the south called Judah, the two tribes that remained. For some time, these nations persisted separated, but the northern kingdom, under terrible spiritual leadership um, and political leadership, got worse and worse. It assimilated with the cultures and the nations around, looked more and more like them, less and less like they were ever God's nation. And eventually, God brought judgment upon them through the Assyrians. The wicked Assyrian nation was used to discipline the ten tribes that are called the lost tribes of Israel never to really have a true identity again. And they are taken by Assyria. But the Lord protects the southern kingdom of Judah. And through a series of better spiritual leadership, not all, but better than the north, um, you could think of Hezekiah and Josiah. Through these kings, there was a hundred more years where the southern kingdom uh, fared well enough. 
but they too started digressing spiritually, and their nation looked like other nations. And the people of God, though a faithful remnant who trusted in Yahweh, were, were humble before Yahweh. They were in the nation of Judah, and these, who we might call the believers, they suffered along with all that was happening because Judah, the nation, was ignoring God's rule, ignoring God's reign over them. And so now God is raising up another nation called Babylon, and this nation starting to threaten. Habakkuk is a prophet during that time frame, 15 to 20 years before Babylon comes and takes over the south, conquers the south. So Babylon's rising, and it looks likely they're coming Judah's way. Habakkuk's more concerned with just the spiritual destitution of the nation, how bad the nation had gotten of Judah. And how the people of God, the righteous ones in that nation, who really rested in Yahweh, were suffering under it. And it was hard for him to watch how wicked it had become. So he's going to the Lord, asking for the Lord to intervene. Now it's apparent from the passage that he's been doing this for some time, maybe years, before God actually answers him in any way. So with that introduction, let's turn to Habakkuk. I'll read the first four verses. This is the first of two main appeals the prophet makes to God about the situation. This is God's holy word, Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly, you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer as we begin this book. Lord, there are distressing times and distressing days in many events, both personal and corporate, that cause us great turmoil, distress, We can feel for Habakkuk's cry to you. As we study your word, please increase our faith in you. When we cry out to you, let it be a cry of faith, like that of Habakkuk, a cry that is believing in you, a cry that is mindful of our finiteness, a cry that is honest, a cry that is humble, a cry that seeks your will, even when we do not understand what you are doing. Please help us to understand and apply Habakkuk in this day. In Christ. Amen. The first two chapters of this prophecy contain a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. Habakkuk says something to the Lord by way of appeal, and then the Lord responds. Hearing the Lord's response, Habakkuk comes with a retort, and then finally the Lord responds again. That's what we have in the passage we're looking at today, chapter 1 to verse 4 of chapter 2. Really, if we would summarize it, have in your mind the way this works. Habakkuk says, Lord, why aren't you intervening to stop this rampant sin in the nation of Judah that your people live in? Now, I'm being careful to differentiate. It's true that Judah was called as a nation, but the remnant, the people who were really related to God by faith, were a small group in that. But they were suffering because the nation as a whole was so wicked and so rebellious. Lord, why aren't you intervening? I've been asking for a long time for you to intervene. The Lord responds in a way that shocks. I will intervene. I will stop this sin. 
and I'm going to use Babylon, an even more sinful nation, to do that work. Habakkuk almost immediately responds, wait, wait, wait. Seriously, Lord? Babylon? Them? And the Lord says, trust me. Now, this sermon will only be effective for those who have found themselves in circumstances in their life that you do not understand and wonder what God is doing. Right. Do you find yourself distressed and confused about God's purposes or what you perceive to be his purposes? Maybe it's a personal difficulty. Maybe it's a corporate situation that the church or Christians find themselves in. You see how this crosses all sorts of of boundaries in our lives or definitions of experiences in our lives. We don't understand what God's will is. We see him doing this. We see things falling out a certain way. We don't understand. We know God's sovereign. It's not a cry of disbelief, but we don't get it. And we say to the Lord, how long? Why? That's what's at the heart of Habakkuk's interaction with the Lord on behalf of God's faithful. The way in which God exercises his control of world events as they play themselves out, too often it's incomprehensible to us. And Habakkuk understands this experience. Feeling distress or feeling turmoil over events, it doesn't mean that you don't have faith. In fact, it's likely the opposite. You believe in God. You know him to be the perfect one, the holy one. Yet this does not match what's happening. How could this be the right thing that God's doing here? It's because we believe that we cry out to him. This is Habakkuk's experience. You know, Job wrestled with God in a similar way. Abraham wrestled with God in a similar way. God reveals his will and Abraham says, but Lord, there are righteous people there in Sodom. Jacob wrestled with God physically and spiritually. David wrestled with God in Psalm 90. How long, O Lord? Jeremiah, the prophet, wrestled with God. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, the Psalm of David, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one would accuse the Lord Jesus of not having faith. Habakkuk felt turmoil over the awful state of Judah's affairs, precisely because he believed in God, not because he disbelieved. In fact, what we have in this conversation that we'll begin to look at today, Habakkuk's conversation with the Lord, it reveals that God's perfect justice, his indisputable justice, and also our need to trust him with his justice, with his sovereign will, with his choices. Habakkuk is a call for believers to trust him through whatever circumstances confront us. Habakkuk gives the message that our outward lives may be difficult, but we can and we should trust and rest in him always. Habakkuk reveals that we may not understand or even agree with what we are observing in the world of God's sovereignty, but due to his perfect character, we can rest assured. We can trust in him. We can have faith in Yahweh that he holds us. Let's look at the conversation as it unfolds. You'll see the first four verses contain Habakkuk's plea. Lord, why aren't you intervening? Verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. An oracle is a weighty message. It's not just an important message, it's that, but it's a weighty one. It's hard to bear. The prophets, they bore a heavy burden on behalf of 
the people of God. Habakkuk, we know very little about him personally apart from this prophecy, but we know that he's been persistent in seeking the Lord's intervention. Look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So it appears that he's been uh, praying for some time, asking for God to intervene. Now what is he crying to God concerning? We get a picture of the state of affairs. Look at verse 2 in verse 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence. He sees violence all around. People treating each other uh, violently. And you will not save. How much of this violence will you see and not do anything? Why do you make me see iniquity in verse 3? The sin that was rampant in among the people of Judah. The filth of it all. And why do you idly look at wrong? It's a picture of God sitting there while it's happening and doing nothing. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk describes a terrible state of Judah, a bit of anarchy. Violence characterizes the way they are interacting with one another. Iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention. This is a culture in disintegration. This is a culture living out its passions, its lusts, living according to its own law, its own sense of what is right and what is wrong. Sin and iniquity as a result are rampant. That's what happens when God's law is shirked. The law of the jungle happens. That's the person and their flesh is what makes decisions. And let's just get enough people to agree and that's the law for now. And then it'll change and it drives that culture downward into sin and iniquity. And Habakkuk can't imagine how God doesn't seem to be doing anything. The righteous people of God in the midst of this nation, Judah, trust in you, Yahweh, and now everything is falling apart and it's awful. Why do you make me see iniquity, verse 3, and why do you idly look at wrong? The prophet struggles. He struggles with a sense of aloneness. Am I the only one seeing this, Lord? Do you not see this? Habakkuk describes the situation as having reached a place where God's word is not honored. And the result, well, it's to be expected when God's word is not honored. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed. It's run so wild that they're numb to your word. They're numb to your standards. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Now this is still Judah. We're not talking about Babylon at this point. This is Judah, the nation. The righteous in that nation are being crushed by the unrighteous supposed to be God's nation. But the truth is only God's people are a small remnant, it appears. And the whole of it's coming down on those who do trust in Yahweh. He's calling out for those who trust in Yahweh. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Society had broken down to this certain level of anarchy that Habakkuk was experiencing. Without justice, lawbreakers grow more and more brazen and violence becomes more and more widespread. People are being harmed. There's no just, people are exploited. People are oppressed. People are killed. People are hurt. People are suffering because there's no respect for God's revelation and his description of how we are to treat one another, how we're to live. And that's what happens in Judah. And the righteous are feeling that now as they are crushed also. Fentress, the commentator, said that Habakkuk is deeply disturbed by the spiritual and social state of affairs in the nation of Judah. He expresses his frustration over witnessing human corruption and depravity without, throughout Judah. His complaint was a lament. That's, he's praying to God, lamenting the state of affairs 
because God's law has been jettisoned. And this is what happens. Now, it should happen. I understand, O oh Lord, that Egypt should be like that, or Babylon, but this is Judah. And look what's happened. O oh, Palmer Robertson said, The righteous people of the Lord suffer endless abuse. Prayers of the devout go unheard. How does the Lord explain this terrible circumstance? And how does he own this lack of response, this response to the cry of the prophetic mediator? So, the first four verses, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, why aren't you intervening with the sin of Judah? Now, there's no doubt Habakkuk has in his mind some answer to this. Cause repentance among the people of Judah. Turn them away from this. He wants change. He wants this to stop. That's his prayer. Well, now we receive the answer of the Lord, and it's not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for, not the one he surmised. The Lord responds, in essence, you are right, prophet of God. None of what you said is false. It's all true about how bad it is, and I will stop it. And you know how I will stop it? I will use a nation even more wicked than them to stop them from doing it. What? God doesn't dispute with Habakkuk. Look what it says in verse 5. His response to Habakkuk's appeal. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. No mistake, it's God who's going to do what's coming. He starts to answer Habakkuk. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. Habakkuk, what, what could this be? For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is directly quoted, by the way, in Acts 13 when Paul's preaching about something God's about to do. Habakkuk, at this time, doesn't know what this is. What will God do to stop this thing he's been crying out concerning? Verse 6, not what he expected. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the ancient name for what now had become at this time the Babylonians, those from the Chaldees that have risen up. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Lord responds not with a commitment to send spiritual revival to Judah at the first, but rather a promise to raise up an awful nation to, dis to discipline Judah. Judah was not as strong as they thought they were. Their only strength was because God was their God. Without God as their God, they are bare open to anybody, even those worse than them. Not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. First, there was Assyria, who was fierce enough. But now even more fierce than the Assyrians are the Babylonians. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Notice it's not God allowed this to happen, that kind of language. That's not biblical language. That's what we use to try to apologize for God. He does not need our apologies. He's God. He does what he wants. And it says in verse 6, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Verse 7, it describes them further. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They are full of themselves. They are confident about who they are. They think they are themselves God. Their king thinks he's God. And they don't care who's in their way. They'll mow them over. And I'm raising them up to discipline you, Judah. That's a full description. But he goes further. They're awful. Verse 9. They all come for violence. 
all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. It's likely Habakkuk knew about the Babylonians, but that wasn't his first thought when he's crying out about Judah. But Judah had grown its own kind of arrogance. We're God's people. Never mind the covenant stipulations. We're God's people. God cannot let Israel in the north is gone, so surely, surely we could do what we want. They become their own gods. They become not much different than the Babylonians. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Look at verse 10, more description of who these Babylonians were. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. So they come up to a fortress and they laugh at it. What what is this fortress you show? What do they do? For they pile up earth and take it. They just pile up dirt because they have so many people and so much power. They can move dirt, pile it up in front of your fortress and just climb over it and kill you. That's the Babylonians. That's who's coming. That's my answer, Habakkuk. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Do you catch their arrogance? Do you catch how much their, their pride? They're walking with this pride and they're being used to discipline Judah. Robertson said, It is clearly God who has raised up this nation for his own purposes. He alone is its source of power. Despite all its will for self-determination, the king of kings shall mete out the tasks of this nation, Babylon. So Habakkuk says, Lord, why aren't you intervening to stop the sin of Judah? The Lord says, I will stop it, and I will use the Babylonians to do it. Brothers and sisters, let's know this. Sin is far more serious than we can imagine. We should not gauge our righteousness against the righteousness of other people. That is not God's standard. Our sin on its own is enough, no matter whose is worse. It's a mistake to think less of our sins because there's some other greater sinners than us. God's justice is pure, and it's based on his righteous standards, not ours. Now, for the godly, the first thing you should be thinking of is Jesus Because it's true everything that's being said about sin and my sin. I've got nowhere to go with it, God, but to Christ. And that's exactly what Yahweh is working in the righteous of Israel, of Judah. They will have to come to Yahweh for salvation. The salvation he has promised and pictured through the sacrificial system. If you humble yourself and come, you are my child. You are saved. That's what is being said. That's what's being pronounced by the prophet, in essence, by what he describes here. This is what the message will come forward from Yahweh. But yes, Babylon's sin is awful, worse than Judah's. But Judah's is bad enough, and it has to be reckoned. Habakkuk, hearing this response, look at verse 12 of this first chapter. Now his response to what he's just heard, he's got to be shocked. He he knows it's not going to be a good response because he's confessing the sins of Judah that are obvious to God. But could he imagine that God would do this using this nation? Seriously, Lord, Babylon of all places. Verse 12, he starts with a profession of faith, a confession of faith, as it were. It's also a way to hold God accountable, if you will. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy? Aren't you the sovereign one? We shall not die. It's an appeal with your covenant people. You've made promise to us. Don't you remember these promises? You're from everlasting. You're from before time. 
So he starts his response with a statement of faith, which is important. I know we're bad, Lord, but Babylon's worse. You're sending them to discipline us? He appeals to God's character, to his sovereignty, to his eternal nature, to his perfect justice, his perfect righteousness, to his covenant promises. How can God allow his people to be annihilated by a people who deserve more judgment? They're mistaken about who's God's people. And I'll make that clear in just a bit. But this is Habakkuk crying out for on behalf of Judah. And he reminds God of Babylon's fate as unbelievers in the next few verses as he intersperses it with the sins of Judah. Look at verse 12, the second part. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for a reproof. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, can you rethink this? He says, you've done this. You've decreed this. I've heard this. You've decreed this. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. He's starting to come outwardly with the realization that sin, all sin, is an offense to God. He can't look at any wrong, and Judah was doing enough of its wrong. It's not for Habakkuk to ask how God will do the discipline, because the discipline is deserved. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? talking about what's happening with Judah and the nation he's raising up, and he's calling into question, at the same time professing, Lord, you could do whatever you want, but they're worse than us, not them. Where's your justice? Where's your holiness? God's justice, brothers and sisters, is often beyond our understanding, and he does not owe us an explanation so we can get it right in our heads. You'll hear people say, well, that's not my God. That's God, though. And you don't want your God. That's exactly the point that's brought these people to this place. They've been their own God, and where has it gotten them? God's righteous judgments are beyond our comprehension in many cases. He gives us revelation about some. We know some of it, but sometimes we don't know. That's true personally in events. It's true corporately. It's always a call back to humility before the Lord. The Babylonians are no respecters of your creation, the prophet says. They are heartless, merciless, and cruel. And he explains what they're like. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea before the Babylonians, he's saying. Like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. Here the prophet could be referring to something very specific, this imagery of the fish and catching the fish with a hook and with a net. Snyman, one of the many commentators on Habakkuk, said it this way, the fish metaphor is now applied to what the Babylonians do. They catch people making use of hooks and then gather them up into nets, literally. There's evidence of prisoners of war being taken in nets by the Babylonians. This is also known that the Babylonians drove a hook through the sensitive lower lip of their captives and strung them up in single file. Verse 15, he gathers them in a dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. This is the nation that you're calling us to be disciplined by, O Lord. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net? Will this ever stop then? They're just mowing over the earth and mercilessly killing nations forever. Habakkuk bravely stands in God's presence to beg him, in essence, to reconsider what he plans to do. 
He can't bear what God proposes. And he seems willing after a second time now, first appeal, God responds. He appeals now a second time. And he positions himself, as it says in verse 1, on his watch post. Picture this. It says in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he is saying that I've spoken my peace. I've cried out to you. Now I will wait for your response. And the watch post would be where you'd have the first garrison of troops with a, a person who's a scout watching for the enemy to come to see what the response would be. And so he's there, and the people are back in the city. So he's kind of a first responder to the issue. And that's what the prophet's like for the people. And Lord, I've spoken. I've cried out to you. Now I will take my post and await your response. Robertson says that Habakkuk was no lightweight wrestling through the deep things of God. He poses no infantile questions about judgments and the world to come. Habakkuk resolves to wait for an answer from the Lord. So the dialogue goes as such. Habakkuk, Lord, why aren't you intervening regarding sinful Judah? The Lord says, I will intervene, and I will raise Babylon up to stop their sinning. Habakkuk says, wait, seriously, Babylon, that's who you're sending? And the Lord says, in verse 3 and verse 4, trust in me. Faithful of Yahweh, trust in me. That's what he says. Now, much more comes from this as the book unfolds, but this basic message in verse 3 and verse 4, we should not lose. And the Lord answered me, verse 2, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Habakkuk, I am sending the Babylonians. What I have told you will come to pass. Faithful of Yahweh, it's coming to Judah. Yes, you'll be under this, but Judah will receive this judgment from Babylon that I have promised. All sin will be judged, some in temporal times, all in eternity. That's true for all of us. So the real question at pause now is how will your sin be judged? How will it be paid for? How will it be atoned for? Will you atone for it? Because you will have to take all of eternity and you will still not pay enough against God's justice. Or will someone else take it? And the faithful of Yahweh who hear this, Habakkuk first, knows he must humbly bow down to God for his salvation and recognize his need for the sins that he has committed to be taken away. Because here's the description between the unrighteous and the righteous. It's as simple as verse 4. Behold his, the unrighteous, behold his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. If it's upright within him, it's humbly believing on Yahweh. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. This is a, a constant, eternal theme. James captures it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is true for all the prideful. 
Pride Month and beyond. That they will be brought low and the humble will be raised. That, that is a non-stop message of the Scriptures. Behold, his soul is puffed up, Habakkuk. It's not right within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Faith in who? In Yahweh and Yahweh's provision. It cannot be in yourself. You cannot trust yourself to save yourself. You cannot trust yourself for your might. You have no might. You've got to trust in Yahweh who provides it. This very verse was rightly grasped by the reformers and pulled back into the forefront in Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. What does this mean? The justified, the ones who are right with God, live by not their might, but by trust in Yahweh and trust in his provision. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, Now it is evident that no one is made right or justified before God by the law or by their obedience. The righteous, on the other hand, they'll live by faith. Faith in who? The one who's fulfilled the law. We have more of an explanation as the New Testament unfolds. But the Old Testament saints had enough. You cannot trust yourself or your righteousness or your ability to keep the law. You must trust in Yahweh's provision. What's his provision? The lamb you slaughter every year at Passover, the sacrificial code, it all points to someone else has to take your sins. Trust in him. The author of Hebrews said, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Same words as Habakkuk. The author of Hebrews really captures them. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The foundation for righteousness, brothers and sisters, is, for, is genuine faith. It's faith in Christ. It's faith in what God provides. The righteous are those who trust God's righteousness and not their own No matter what happens outwardly, God's call to us is to rest in him. True salvation is only by faith. The Babylonians trusted themselves, and they would ultimately also find their fate in themselves. That's what God goes on to explain to Habakkuk in the next chapter. But Calvin captures it so clearly. He said, it is indeed certain that the prophet understands that faith strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God, that we may seek salvation from him alone which would otherwise be far removed from us, salvation that is. How long, O Lord, then, and, how, and why, O Lord, that these are not the cries of disbelief. How long, O Lord, is the cry of faith? Habakkuk takes his incomprehension to God as a point of worship. He knows God's character. Habakkuk's conversation with the Lord reveals God's perfect justice in our need to trust him no matter what. So many things are revealed in this chapter that unfold in the rest of the book. For the godly, the Lord calls us to trust him no matter what happens outwardly. Our response to seeing God's justice is to seek God's grace and cover from ultimate justice, no matter what happens in the temporary. Sometimes God gives the people of God great times of respite and joy and peace. Other times, we're called to endure. The godly are sometimes swept up in the immediate temporal judgment of an ungodly world. The godly are not promised 
immediate protection in all ways from the judgments that come on nations. A response to God's righteous judgments when we see them, when we perceive them, when we recognize them. It should be to worship him, to trust him. Our faith in the promises of God can open the way to forgiveness as we understand his promise of salvation in Christ. God requires this faith and this patience in walking with him. There are very few instant solutions. It's not simple, brothers and sisters, to detect God's way in the course of history. In fact, the prophet Isaiah captured this beautifully when he said that my thoughts, the Lord said through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, brothers and sisters, the call here is to trust in the purposes of the Lord, despite our confusing perceptions about what he is precisely doing. God is not primarily committed to our peace, prosperity, and security in the short life. He secured that for eternity. But there are other purposes he's working for us now, and he'll accomplish them and give us what we need for them. God's first concern for us is faithfulness living by his word, true worship. Robertson, who I quoted earlier, said, a matured faith trusts humbly but persistently in God's design for establishing righteousness in the earth. Bruckner, another commentator, said the message of Habakkuk's proclamation is that God is interested first in restoring us to a right relationship with himself as created and redeemed people. Without that reconciled relationship, earthly peace and security are just a facade. Isaiah agrees with the prophet Habakkuk. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him, who have faith in him. Let's pray. Father, it is clear that you have a plan for us that outlasts our temporal comforts And it may be beyond, in fact, it mostly is beyond our perception. Father, because you love us, you have no hesitation in stripping us of our self-confidence and self-righteous delusions. While our temporal circumstances, they may in fact be distressing. Though we may feel the, the turmoil of living in this age, we also have the beautiful gift of faith from you that gives us rest in your salvation alone who is, in particular, the person of Christ himself. Pray this in his name. Amen.